The reading today is 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Dave, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin by praying together. Our Father, it seems an extraordinary thing to us that before you even made this world and all the things that we've seen already this morning that you're sustaining, before the creation of the world, you had decided, Father, Son, Spirit, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be sacrificed for our sake. That is an extraordinary truth, a bewildering decision. We pray that that would change us this morning. My words will not do that, but your words can do that. So please take them by your spirit and change us so that we do indeed live the lives that you long for us while we're strangers on this world. Amen. Last week then we started uh, looking at this book of 1 Peter in the mornings. And uh, I suggest to you that the dominant theme or idea is that in this world, the Christian is a stranger or an alien, not at home. So right at the very beginning of the letter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter is writing to God's elect strangers, strangers in the world. In our reading again today, verse 17, we're called as Christians to live your lives as strangers. That's not a complicated idea. Peter is saying, for the Christian, this life is a journey and heaven is home. And therefore, don't make the journey your home. That would be a strange thing to do. Enjoy life in this world, but live it being very clear that it's only the journey. Don't confuse the journey with the destination. And you can see in other walks of life, that would be a very strange thing to do. All of a sudden, for some reason, you have to run with me, because road um, uh, uh, works would make this impossible. But imagine you decided the circle line would be your home. 
And it didn't shut down for most of the weekend. It kept running seven days a week. In fact, 24 hours a day, the circle line kept running and running and running. And you decided, I'm going to make the circle line my home. And you go for it. I mean, you want a nice home. Why wouldn't you want a nice home? So you invest in your seat. You had a little kitchenette attached just to the um, the front of your seat. Obviously, you'd have to make it into a commode-type seat on the underground as well. You have a little lighting. You go to John Lewis and get some new lights to go above your your seats. That would be a strange thing to do on the circle line. I mean, metropolitan maybe. It's nicer. But you wouldn't make the journey your home. That is obviously a ridiculous thing to do. Peter says to Christians, don't make this life when you're a stranger. You're an alien in a foreign land now. Don't make this life your home. You're journeying to your home. Don't confuse the journey with a destination. That would be a ridiculous thing to do. And that's the metaphor that really dominates. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of of, uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, and there's not an instruction or a command in sight, if you were here last week. It's purely a description, largely, of what God has done, and therefore the impact that will have upon us. The main thing being, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, praise God, because, that's not a command, it's just an expression of joy. I want to praise God, because in his great mercy, he's giving us new birth into a living hope. The Lord has, if you're a Christian, God has changed you. He's given you, instilled within you, a living hope that will transform your life. No instructions last week, just purely a description of what God has done and and the impact it has upon us. But this week he comes to the implication of that. So chapter 1, verse 12, sorry, 13, therefore. So God has done something wonderful in you if you're a Christian. He's put a hope within you. It's a living hope. Therefore. Well, three things. There are three little instructions in the passage we had. You could summarize them like this. Be hopeful, be holy, be fearful. Just working through the passage. So we take them in turn. Probably in diminishing popularity. I don't know about that. Be hopeful, be holy, be fearful. Given what God has done, given that God has put a hope inside of you, live like this, says Peter. Okay, let's take them in turn. Be hopeful, first of all. Verse 13, be hopeful in future grace. He puts it this way. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, therefore, because you've been given a living hope, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. That's the big idea in verse 13. That's the sort of command or imperative. The rest is a bit of a a drum roll building up to that. There is a, we thought last week briefly, there is a treasury of grace awaiting you in heaven. Set your mind on that. It's hard because it's more wonderful than anything we can imagine. But set your mind on that. Don't make an each way bet, says Peter. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. Fully. It's quite a strong command, isn't it? If you're a Christian, don't hedge your bets. Don't look forward to heaven, but um, really secretly have have your longings you think will be fulfilled in this world. Don't hedge your bets. If this is a roulette game, which God doesn't encourage, but if it were, put it all on red. Everything. Everything you have. 
the whole lot. Set your hope fully upon the grace that is to come. Look forward to heaven that much. It transform you radically. Now, practically, what does that look like? Well, that's the two little things that come before it. How do you set your hope fully on the grace to be given you? Well, two little things. You have to prepare your mind and you have to be self-controlled. Prepare your minds, literally, girding up the loins of your mind. It's a terrific expression, isn't it? Gird up your loins of your mind. Now, some will be familiar with that. It was always a, I used to find this a bewildering expression when I was young. I had no idea what it meant. Gird up your loins. What does that mean? It sounds slightly risque. But, um, of course, in, in the culture of the time, Men and women would be wearing robes, long flowing robes. To gird up your loins is to gather up your robe and shove it into your belt so you can run, you can go quickly. I guess the sort of equivalent would be Peter saying to a woman going to some elaborate black tie ball in her dress and high heels. Look, hoik up your dress, throw away your stilettos and get some trainers on. Get ready, you got, you be ready for action, okay? Gird up your loins. You're going to have to run. There's lots of of Old Testament allusions here. When uh, God's people in the Old Testament left Egypt, he told them, gird up your loins. You're about to go. You're about to leave. Get ready to run. So what would you say? Put on the trainers of your mind. Get ready. Be ready for action. Don't be slow, lazy, whatever it may be. Be ready. If you were preparing to run in the Olympic Games, you wouldn't fill your body with donuts. If you're running, I mean, if it's sumo or something like that, maybe. But if you're running in the Olympic Games, you don't fill your body with donuts. If you're on your way to heaven, you don't fill your mind with worldly fatty foods, mental trash. You fill your mind with the truth. So you're going to set your hope on the, on the, on the grace to come. If you fill your mind with the truth of, that that will happen. Be prepared to, um, set your minds for action. Then the second thing is similar, I guess. Be self-controlled. Literally, be sober-minded. Which is clear, isn't it? Don't be drunk. Don't be intoxicated with the stuff of the world. By the little um, 24-hour supermarkets near us, there's a guy often outside of it. He's stoned out of his head. He's very friendly. No idea whatever he's saying because he he just uh, dribbles, really. Very friendly. (laughs) Brilliant. very, Very nice, I guess. Harmless. But he's wasting his life. He's just intoxicated. He's stoned. Peter's saying, look, don't be stoned not by this world. Don't be intoxicated, inebriated by what goes on around you. Don't be intoxicated by possessions, by your reputation, by your career. Don't be intoxicated by that. Don't set your hope on those things. They will go. Set your hope on the grace that is to come. Don't confuse the journey with the destination. Don't mix those two up. So he'd say, be hopeful. Set your hope fully on the grace that awaits you. And you do that then, you need to get the truth of God's word in 
and not be intoxicated by this world. So a question worth asking yourself. If I find myself, in reality, I don't hope a huge amount for what happens next, for the, ne- for the next life. What am I intoxicated by? What is it in this world that is robbing me of that control that I'm stoned by? It would be something. If our hope is not set fully on the future ahead of us, we're either not getting enough truth in, or we're just intoxicated by what is coming in. It's worth asking what would do that. Set your hope fully, says Peter, on the grace that's to come. Be hopeful. Secondly, uh, it's all related, but secondly, verses 14 to 16, be holy. Be holy, like your father, verses 14 to 16. Be holy. So verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he called you his, sorry, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it's written, be holy, because I am holy. Obviously there's a, a negative and a positive here. Don't conform to the evil desires, but be holy. Take them in turn. The negative's a bit strong, I think, here, how it's translated. Don't confirm to the, sorry, conform to the evil desires, literally passions. Don't conform to the passions you had, the things that excited you before you ever became a Christian, if you can remember that time. Whatever it is, passions for comfort or security. Don't conform to them. Now, that's very hard. Because conforming is easy. And one of the lovely democratic things about the idea of conforming is you don't notice you're doing it. doesn't matter what age you are. You just conform to the people around you without really recognizing you're doing it. We're all capable of that. We moved recently. I had to sort out some... Oh, you know, inevitably, you find things that you hadn't seen for years. I found some old photos. There was a photo of me when I was 18 years old. And of course, age 18, you don't conform with anything. You're a rebel. You don't do what anyone tells you. You do your own thing. You listen to your own music. You're crazy. You're just rebellious, age 18. Apart from as I looked at this photo of me and my classmates who left school at age 18 on a social occasion, there we were, nonconformist, rebellious types, all wearing precisely the same clothes. These ridiculous felt shoes with flowers on them, large hooded tops, which were all far too big for us, listening to all the same music, which I never really liked at the time. The, um, we were radical. We didn't conform. We were going to change the world. We were just all the same. You just conform. It's not hard to conform. Yeah, children, hey, 18, dear, oh dear, now I'm whatever, 30, whatever you are, 30, 40, 50, I don't conform. Well, just look around your office and have a think about that. Oops. Always makes me smile at this part of Mayfair. The two different industries, really, um, property and uh, private finance, particularly the hedge funds. You wander around here in the week. And uh, certainly the hedge funds, th- those sort of guys, they don't conform. They don't wear suits. Suits are for the city. They all all wear jeans and V-neck jumpers made out of merino wool. They're all the same. They're just so crazy not fitting in with those city types. They all end up wearing precisely the same clothes as one another. Conforming's not hard to do. It's very easy. And here, I think the setting here in 1 Peter, for the Christians, very tempting to conform. Because 
Well, when they were distinct, people gave them a hard time. When they stood out and were known as being Christians and tried to live different ethical lives, moral lives, well, they were given a hard time. And conforming is not only easy because it's what we instinctively do, it's comfortable because no one, we fit in when we conform. We don't annoy anyone or upset anyone when we conform. Very easy to do. And of course, if you, the only way you won't conform, or certainly in this thinking, is if you maintain your hope. Do you see the relationship between these two? If you lose your hope in what's coming next, of course you'll blend in and conform. Of course you will. We watched a film the other night, uh, Outside the Law. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Uh, it was a good film, very good film, not so good history apparently. So Outside the Law, it's a film about uh, three brothers, Algerian brothers, post-war France. They're living in France, but they want our, our independence for Algeria. So they're uh, guerrilla fighters. And um, they, uh, so good film, subtitle if you don't mind that. Good film, bad history apparently. Anyway, but um, uh, in the film, these three brothers, they want independence for Algeria and therefore they'll risk their lives for it. They do not conform with the law in France. They take radical measures to try and push Algerian independence because that's the thing they long for, that's their hope. So, what does the government do in the film, nasty, bad France, that you have to get over that, but uh, in the film, what does the government do? The government tries to assassinate the leader of the Algerian movement, Abdul Kader. If you take away the leader, you crush the movement because they no longer hope that things will change. And so they don't hope that things will change, they just go back to being good citizens and they're crushed down. Remove the hope and of course everyone's, you're just going to conform. Because there's hope. If you think things might change, or you'll be radical. You can live uh, distinctive lives. Do you see the link between hope and having that clear and just blurring in conformity? You have to still maintain that. So be holy. But there's the, uh, the, sorry, uh, the negative side. Don't conform. The positive is be holy. Be holy. Verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, because it's written, be holy, because I'm holy. God's holiness, his otherness. When holy is used to describe God, which, anyways, it's the, the, the dominant adjective that's used to describe him, his otherness, he is completely different in both his power and his purity. So when God says to people, be holy like I'm holy, he's not saying go and create a planet. He's saying, be different, be distinctive. Don't just blend in with the crowd around you. And that's what's expected. I mean, in the Old Testament, God's people were told, be holy. Why? So that you, you're, you Israelites, you are to live differently. And then when people see you living differently, they'll say, gosh, your God's an interesting God. He actually changes you. Wow. And you have good laws and you live in a healthy way. We want to know your God. They want, is that still the same in the New Testament, Christians are lived to, to live distinctive lives for the sake of the watching world. So people say, hmm, your God changes you. Yes. 
Come and meet Jesus Christ. He is wonderful. He is wonderful. And so if you're a Christian here today, the watching world needs you to see that sorry, needs to see that in your life. This is pitiful, but let me just give me one minute on this. Um, illustration Superman. The second Superman film, they're getting starting to get quite bad. But the second Superman film, do you remember the, the basic plot line of that? Superman, he just wants to settle down. He's had enough of being super and different and distinctive, saving the world. It was fun. It's now got a bit routine. And he just wants to settle down with Lois Lane. He just wants normal. That's all he wants. He wants to conform. And so, I don't know how it works. He goes into the red light in the middle of the Arctic and loses all his powers. And he's just a man. And how he gets back into the civilization. We're never told that. He flies there. How he gets back, who knows? Anyway, but he's just a man now. He's conformed. And he, okay, I conform. But of course, that's not, the world needs more from him than that. Because they're those ridiculously overacting camp baddies, General Zod and his gang, with their dreadful overacting and superpowers. And the world needs Superman to be different from them. Humanity doesn't need him just to conform, needs him to be different, holy, in order to fight whatever. Do you see the point? Christians are meant to be distinctive. That's what the world needs. So the watching world looks on and says, "Mm, you're God. He does do things, doesn't he? Yes. So don't conform, but be holy. And the, the expectation in the Christian life is, Well, it's twofold. This happens. If you're a Christian, you become like your father over time. That's his work within you. It's wonderful. But we have to work at it as well. If God is your father, you do increasingly become like him. Now, tragically, we see this in human lives. As I get older, despite my best efforts, I become more like my father. Now, sorry, I should rephrase that. There's much which is very wonderful about my father. But what I pick up is his silly habits. I don't know why. So he, he, you know, I find myself, I come into a room and, you know, there'll be people there and I go, why do I do that? My dad used to do that. I used to think it was very stupid when he did it. What is that? And now I just do it. Why? I'm becoming like him. I can't help it. My hairline is very much becoming like his. I can't. Help it. It just happens. You become like your father. And that's true in the Christian life, but we're to work at it as well. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you to work out his set plans and purpose. That's how Paul would put it. You have to work, and God is working within you. Those two are always the case. So God is at work. There's a supernatural power in your life by his spirit, if you're a Christian. But you need to work at not being conformed as well. Both resolve to be like your father. There's the first of them. Be hopeful. Be hopeful in the future grace. Be holy like your father is holy. Third and last is this. Be fearful. Be fearful. And in particular of abusing Christ's blood, verses 17 to 21. Now, I don't know what you make of that. Be hopeful. That's a nice thing. Be hopeful. Oh, okay. I'll be hopeful. Be holy. Well, that's okay. I kind of expect that as a Christian. Be fearful. Hmm. It's a bit different, isn't it? 
what is surprise? This is, I think, a little surprising here. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. The word reverent doesn't appear in the Greek. It's just the translators don't know what to do with this. Live in fear sounds a bit wrong. So they've just shoved a word in front of it just to well, soften the blow a little bit, I think. So you just live your lives in fear. Now, what, do you, what does that mean? What sort of fear is that? How does that fit with be hopeful? At a wedding yesterday, preaching on 1 John 4, perfect love drives out fear. Okay? But here it's be fearful, live in fear. What, what does he mean? What different types of fear? I mean, to briefly state it, and then let me uh, demonstrate this. He's, the Bible would say for the new Christian, don't fear God's judgment. Don't cower in fear before him, but fear dishonoring him. Long to live for his honor. Fear embarrassing him in that sort of sense. We were uh, with some friends the other day, had uh, uh, three children, and the eight-year-old girl was winding up her older brother, who's three years older, winding him up. And obviously she's had quite a lot of experience of doing this and is now quite adept. And this is obviously a recurrent uh, a, a, um, event in their household. So she was winding him up and we were sat around and this was very obvious to everyone what was going on. And uh, at one point the father just looked at her and gave her you know, what, what you could only describe as the look. So she caught his eye and it was a And everyone, everyone could hear what the look was saying. The look was saying, stop winding up your brother now. I'm not going to make a fuss about it now. But if you keep doing this, I will be very disappointed with you. He didn't say any of that, but the look said that, and everyone could read what the look was saying. He, just, he looked at her. The only thing he said was, Flora, I love you. And then the rest of then the rest was just unsaid. But she heard it all. She heard all of it, because uh, she just looked up and sort of gave a slightly gappy smile <laughs> and behaved and behaved. Now, what is going on there? She she doesn't want to let her dad down. She loves her father. They have a great relationship. Loves time with him. Loves being with him. But doesn't want to disappoint him. Knows that there'll be a well, it'll be awkward between them a little bit if she does that. Of course he'll forgive her, but doesn't want that awkwardness. So she fears him in that right sense. And that is the fear that the Bible speaks of for the believer. And often, it's very often, it's connected to holiness. Let me just give you a few other places where that's obvious to, to prove the point. So 2, 2 Corinthians 7. Verse 11, Paul puts it this way, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear. So if you have a godly repentance, it would happily produce fear. Or, next one, Colossians 3. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not only by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It's entirely normal for the Christian. And the next one would be 
In 1 Timothy, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Do you see, this type of fear is deeply connected with godly living in the New Testament. I think there's one more, isn't there? 2 Corinthians 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. The fear of God. So this appropriate sense of fearing him, not wanting to let him down, goes with holiness. Not a cowering fear, not a fear of judgment in any sense, but uh, I don't want to ruin things here a little. I don't want to let him down. But you see, Riley understood how that sort of fear can very easily sit alongside hope and joy and security. That's quite normal. We get that in human relationships. Again, I married a couple yesterday, and they, they, obviously they are in love with one another, great joy, celebration. You know, it was a good day, and they enjoyed it enormously, and so did everyone else. It's great joy there. But alongside that, they make solemn vows to love and to cherish, and, you know, sickness and health, till death us do part. They make their solemn vows, and inherent in them, they're saying, look, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to let you down. I, I, I don't want to ruin this. So alongside the joy and the pleasure and the delight, there's also a seriousness. Look, I want to get this right. In that sense, Christians are to fear, live their lives in fear. So there's fear there. Be fearful. Be fearful. And in one sense, it's connected in this way. Be fearful because you have a father who judges. And there's a second reason to be fearful or live in fear, which is uh, very similar, I think. It comes in verses 18 and 19. Live in fear because, well, you have a costly redemption, is the point there. Verses 18 and 19. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now, redemption, uh, if you're a Christian a while, you know you should be familiar with that language. It's the language of the slave market. You pay a cost to redeem someone from slavery. Or someone may have earned money themselves in order to buy themselves out of slavery. It's liberation from slavery at the payment of a price. Is what redemption is, broadly speaking, biblically. And the price here paid is an expensive one. It's the precious blood of Christ. But notice here what, what we're redeemed from. And of course the Bible would say generally we're redeemed um, in two senses. We're redeemed from sin and death. But here the emphasis is not upon eternal, redemption from eternal things, but it's redemption from, well, how does it describe it? The empty way of life. So the Bible is quite happy to speak. If you're a Christian, you're redeemed from judgment. You're redeemed from sin and death. Also, you're redeemed from wasting your life. And in that sense, Peter is using the term here. Saying, look, you live your lives here of holiness, live them in fear, honoring the Lord, because, well, look, because the price paid for you is an enormous one, and you've been redeemed out of wasting your life to live a productive life, 
for the Lord. So don't waste what he's done for you. I read an interview recently with Lisa Potts. Do you remember her? 1996, she was a nursery, nursery school teacher. And uh, 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 a um, man entered the school with a machete and entered her classroom. And uh, she got in the way between all the pupils, these under fives, these toddlers, and, uh, and the man. So she got in the way, got them all out of the classroom, while this bloke is hacking away at her with a machete. So 16 years ago now. And uh, she suffered enormous cuts. Her, her limb was severed. I mean, it's been repaired to a certain extent. Uh, but she's still scarred. And she suffers with great depression recurrently, post-traumatic stress after the event, 16 years afterwards. But, I mean, incredibly brave thing to do. She was only 18, I think, at the time, threw herself between this man with a sword to save the lives of these 20 kids. The Queen awarded her the George Medal. Wonderful bravery. She's gone on. She's, this interview was about the charity she set up 10 years ago. Incredible woman in many ways. Now, Lisa Potts, she could happily turn round to some of those children she saved 16 years ago. And if they're now in, whatever, early 20s, and they're just wasting their lives, doing nothing. They've joined our local stoned bloke outside the supermarket, and they sit there every day, and they smoke their spliffs, and that's all they do all day, all week. Lisa Potts could happily go to them and say, what are you doing? I put my life at risk for you. My life has been utterly changed by the events of that day. For you, I've suffered years of depression. For you, and you're wasting it. You are wasting your lives. You're just living in a futile way. I didn't do this for you to waste the life I've given you. Live, be productive, be useful with your lives. And that's the logic here in 1 Peter 1, verse 18. It wasn't with perishable things such as silver or gold. You were redeemed from an empty, futile life, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't waste your life here. Live it in appropriate fear before the Lord. Live it in holiness. Don't waste your life. Don't confuse this journey with the destination. Don't waste your life building a kitchen on the circle line. Why would you do that? You've been saved for something much more if you're a Christian. It was a costly thing, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. You know that story back in Exodus. Do you remember um, Exodus chapter 12, which is the allusion here? In Exodus chapter 12, of course, uh, the Israelites, God's people, they're in Egypt. And they're enslaved in Egypt. And God has sent the plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Let my people go. No, let my people go. No. comes to the tenth plague. The tenth plague, of course, is that the firstborn son in every family dies in Egypt that night. God warns the Israelites and says, take a lamb. Slaughter a lamb in place of the firstborn son. Take the blood, paint it round the door frame, and God, I will pass over those houses, and that child will not die. Imagine you're the firstborn son that night. 
And all around you, you just hear wailing of the Egyptians whose children have died. And you're told, it's time to go. Come on, it's time to go. We're leaving Egypt now. And bizarrely, the Egyptians, as happened in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12, they're so grateful that the Israelites are going. They give them money. They give them bags of silver and gold and jewels and just say, look, just go, go, go. And so you're holding in your hand, as a whatever you are, 16-year-old, firstborn son, you're holding in your hand this bag of gold. It's more money than you've ever seen in your life. Are you excited by that? You're not. Because as you walk out, you just see death. And you hear the wailing. And all you can think about is, Lord, thank you so much for that lamb which died instead of me. I'm holding a bag of gold, but who cares? Thank you so much for that lamb who died instead of me. And Peter is saying here, the lamb who died instead of you, if you're a Christian, is Jesus Christ. Don't waste the life he's given you. It's worth more than silver and gold. Don't waste the life he's given you. It was always the plan, verse 20. God had decided it before the creation of the world. Why? Verse 21, well, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. Why? So your faith and hope are in God. There we are, back there again. Hope in God. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter. If you're a Christian, God has done something extraordinary. He's placed in you a living hope. Now, set your hope fully on that, on the grace that is to come, on the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Put your hope in that. It'll transform you. Nothing else will change you like having your hope here. Put your hope in God and what he has awaiting you. Put your hope in God. Don't waste your life here and now. Put your hope in him. Hope in God this week. And whatever your circumstances are, hope in God this week if you're battling with some sin and can't move on and not sure. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God if you're sick and wonder what the future will bring. Put your hope in God at work when you're laboring and think, what is this? What, what, uh, I'm working for a man or a company. What is Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Set your hope on the future ahead of you and live for him today. As a stranger in this world, don't confuse this journey with your destination, which is wonderful. Put your hope in God. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know the circumstances of each and every life uh, that is here amongst us. And uh, you know what is tempted to, well, the things that are in our lives which cause us to lack self-control, that dull our minds so they're not ready for action. Would we be realistic, honest with ourselves? Gird up the loins of our mind. Put aside those things which rob us of self-control in order to fix our hope upon you. When we do this, not so that we waste our time daydreaming, but we want to have our hope fixed upon you and upon the future so that we live wonderfully productive lives for you in this world today and this week. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.